So we are in a series called We Cling to the God. And then it's kind of blank, and, and each pastor and each person that's, that's preached over the last few weeks has, has added their own thing. So Jimmy talked about um, the we cling to the God of covenant. And then Emmy spoke about the, the we cling to the God who's present. Tiana spoke about we, we cling to the God who sees us. Um, I spoke weeks ago about the, the we cling to the God of peace and we cling to the God of power. And today, uh, specifically in light of everything that's going on in our world, um, it's, it seem, might seem like a little bit of an odd topic to bring about, uh, and actually maybe even offensive in some ways, and that's, I guess that we'll, we'll see how it goes, all right? Uh, but we cling to the God of hope is what I want to speak about today. Um, so let me pray, and we'll jump into that. God, we are so uh, thankful that uh, we are a group of people that get to gather together to worship you, to praise your name, to carry one another's burdens, to walk alongside one another, to pray for one another, to, to help uh, when other people need help. Um, God, that we get to, to show who you are with our lives and in our community. Would you make us people that love one another as we love ourselves? And so, God, we ask even today that you'd make us more like you, that you give us conviction around, um, around this, this deep abiding hope in you um, and, and the one uh, thing that will never let us down and uh, that's there for us in our deepest trials. And so today we just give this morning uh, fully to you. Amen. Amen. So some people, uh, and this is a pretty common refrain amongst people that are, are fighting for justice in the world or uh, maybe are, are not Christians or are not very religious. They'll, they'll talk about hope as being pretty unhelpful. Um, I think that to them, hope is often a way to um, push off what we should expect and demand now. So hope is about always promising in the future things will get better. All the while, people are getting shot in schools, and people are being mistreated and oppressed and all sorts of other things in our world. So you hear the, the phrases sometimes, just give it a little bit more time. You may have to deal with this a little bit longer, and we promise things will be better. Right? The common refrain during the civil rights movement for a lot of Christians was, well, just be patient. And there's this idea that, that, that someday... If you have, you know, there is going to be hope, and someday there will be righteousness, and someday there will be equality, and someday there will be no more violence, and someday, and you just kind of refrain this, and someday, and it essentially causes us to live in inaction, and it kind of appeases our sense of desire for something good to happen, but nothing actually gets done in the present. An example of that is even this week, and Jimmy did a great job of helping us lament and think. But these mass shootings are happening on a weekly or monthly basis, at least, in our country. And I'll hear Christians at times say, well, you know, a human pulled the trigger of that gun, so unless the human heart changes, we'll, we'll always have violence. But someday, Jesus is going to fix all that. And it's like, okay, like I agree that the human heart is evil. I agree that one day Jesus is going to fix all that. But what does that do for our kids that are getting shot right now? 
We, we do have laws and we do have rules and we do have standards that restrict people's ability to act on their evil in many ways. So we shouldn't have to wait and hope that people will somehow change with progress. We should demand action for our kids and our communities now. So I sympathize with this idea that hope is sometimes, especially in the way that I've, I've framed it so far, very unhelpful. We must not live off of hope in the future instead of demanding change in the present. And then the second reason that hope is really hard is because there's just a lot of really bad things that happen all the time. In our lifetimes, we've seen tsunamis and famines and wars and economic crises and political crises and major international disasters and genocides. And we could go, I could go on and on and on and on. We've, we've observed those things. We've seen the news. We've, those things have happened in our lifetimes, right? And then on top of that, we have people that are, having, that, that are um, making evil choices personally regularly, right? Some of the things I listed before are outside of our control, but, but it's, we're not immune to uh, evil ourselves and certainly our neighbors and people around us. In first, or 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, it talks about this. So listen to this passage and see what you think. This is what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. Now, this verse is very convicting. Verse 5. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. So we have these things happening in our world. We know, I mean, this could describe me at times, this passage, and describe many other people. We see this constantly in our world. And then on top of that, we suffer personally. I mean, I, I, like my suffering is very minimal, but when I'm in the hospital this last week in excruciating pain, I'm thinking, this is miserable. God, like, where are you, right? We visited Alden Lakeland this week, and one of our, our really amazing people that came to our church for years, her name is um, Barbara, and, uh, and she, she's in a bed. Mentally, she's all there, but she will never leave that bed. Her physical body has broken down, and she's in constant pain. And so hope can often seem very distant or even irrelevant. And I think that what the reason that hope is, is pushed back against so much, and maybe why I have such a problem with it, is that I think we make a pretty big mistake when we talk about hope. Hope is almost always framed as solely future. It's oriented solely in the future. It's this idea that our hope is that we somehow will escape to heaven someday. That we will leave this earth behind, we will go to heaven, we'll be up in the sky, we'll leave this wicked old world behind. 
And in, like, in, in allusion to that, it's often in the sense of like, who cares about this world? Who cares about what's happening? I just want to escape to heaven, right? Who cares about earthquakes? Who cares if I don't have a job since we're going to another place anyways? We might as well hurry up. But the Bible talks about hope a lot. In fact, it is a major theme in the New Testament. Paul talks about faith and love and hope. And I think that in the midst of all that's going on in our lives, we need this kind of Christian hope that Jesus and the apostles spoke about more than ever. I think we're created to be hopeful people. We're hope-based creatures, and it matters in our lives today. And I think that we could even say it's the mission of the church in times of crisis and even in the midst of maybe all, at all times, because there's always crisis, that the church is to bring a living hope to people in their present circumstances. So I think we should look, you know, we're not going through a specific passage as much during this series. We're going to go back to Luke next week and we'll, we'll do that. But I want to look a little bit more like biblically about what the future hope is, what the present hope is, and, and how those things work together. Okay? All right. So the first thing I just want to make clear is that the Bible does speak about to the, there being numerous dimensions in our world. That what we see right in front of our faces is not the only thing. That what we can touch and what we can see and what, what we can measure is not all that there is. And so I, I think oftentimes uh, that reality, that spiritual reality, that deeper reality we use to talk about heaven and, and, and leaving earth and everything else, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter what's happening today. So let's look at Psalm 96. This is a, a really famous psalm. Verses 11 through 13 says this, Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that's in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord. Listen, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is telling us that God is going to come and God is going to judge the earth. Now we think of judge, and immediately what comes to our mind is God getting really angry, burning everything up, and throwing it away. Is that true? Yeah. I don't know. Our, our, our backgrounds and our context and our church histories, that is what we think of when we think of judgment. But this is supposed to be a hopeful passage. I'm not kidding. For Israel, this would have been a hopeful passage. The word judge is a good thing. So imagine someone who has been bullied and oppressed and robbed, and they cry out that they need justice, someone to vindicate them. And in the courtroom where they're crying out for justice, the judge upholds this person's rights, and judgment has come according to the truth and righteousness of the good God. That's just what's going to happen for the whole world. The story is God making a world wonderful. Righteous, good. The world really has gone bad and rotten, and God is promising to, to fix it, to sort it out moving forward. So judgment in this passage 
is for people that have been oppressed to say, justice is coming. The righteousness of God is going to be at hand. You see how that's good news? <laughs> and we often see it as negative. And Isaiah, the promise is that God would... Um, it's putting forward for the whole creation is that the, the, a wolf will lay down with the lamb, that thorns and thistles will be replaced with flowerly, flowerly shrubs. I can't say that very well. At the end of the New Testament, the story in the scene is not about people going up and leaving, to, leaving for heaven, their souls just going to heaven. It's this heavenly city coming down to earth so that heaven and earth are joined together. So the Bible is creating a really clear picture that God is going to make a new heavens and a new earth. He's going to make all things, we could say, new in our world. He's going to fix it all. He's going to sort it all out. He's going to bring righteousness and justice and truth to the world and make all the, the bad things good and put an, evil, uh, put an end to evil, suffering, and pain. So if we know where it's headed, uh, pretty clearly from the scriptures. But, but then you might say to me, I thought hope wasn't just future-oriented. You just described the future orientation of the world. What does that mean for now? And I think that Jesus helps us with this. Jesus helps us a clue of what is happening now and why future hope is not the only reality that we cling to during this time. See, Jesus... When he is teaching, is not just teaching how to leave this world and go somewhere else. That's why he prays in the Gospels, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's not talking about a future reality. He's saying, God, bring your future reality present right now. Your kingdom come to earth right now. Your will be done on earth right now as it is in heaven. Do it here. And the second thing that we can be really clear on is that Jesus isn't just simply a teacher. He doesn't just give us these great truths. Jesus, like I like to say, he did stuff, right? Didn't he? He didn't just say these things are going to happen or pray that they would be a reality. He did things. What did he do? He had a party with his friends. He healed people. He walked on water. He fed thousands of hungry people. He calmed storms. Jesus talked about God's kingdom and its inauguration happening right in front of everybody in their midst. That hope has come in the person of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is at hand. So then the question might become like, well, what is the kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of God, I think, is a really important thing because Jesus says it's at hand. He didn't say it's coming. He says it's inaugurated in my very presence. And that means a lot to us. And I think that N.T. Wright helps us in this, and he says this. He says, Jesus is saying, what do you think it would look like if God were running the show? What do you think the world would look like if God had his way completely in, in every single circumstance? And then I think Jesus describes some of the ways in which it would look by his parables. God's kingdom is like the man who had two sons. One of the sons demanded his inheritance now. 
The father gives him his inheritance. He goes off and wastes it on frivolous living, and there's a famine in the land. He becomes desperate, and he hopes that one day he can go back to his dad and that maybe he can just be a hired hand. But instead what happens, the father is waiting for that son, anticipating his return, hoping he would come back, and as soon as he sees him on the horizon, runs and throws a feast, welcomes him back into the family. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Or the kingdom of God is like a wedding feast prepared for all the people that you would think should, it should be prepared for. But they don't come. Those people don't end up coming to the wedding feast. They, they reject and they actually kill the, in, the inviters. Imagine how that, that's kind of bad, right? You get invited to a party and you get killed. So what does he say? The, the, the father of the, the groom says, why don't you just go to every single corner? every single highway and byway and every single corner of the neighborhood and invite whoever will come because the wedding feast is available to them. Or the kingdom of God is like the good Samaritan who saw his neighbor beat up by the side of the road. And instead of ignoring his needs, he bandaged his wounds and he took him to the hospital and he paid for him to get better. So we can begin to see what the kingdom of God is really like. What the world would be like if God's kingdom ruled and reigned. All sorts of things <laughs> that are sad would become untrue, would they not? All the things that are evil would become, would be, uh, would be changed. Our swords really would be turned into plowshares. And so we do live in a very confusing world, in a really hard world. Uh, but that's not new to God. The New Testament is filled with very confusing things, very hard things. Because in the midst of these disciples and uh, the followers of Jesus trying to live into this new reality of the kingdom of God, they faced all sorts of people that were against them. See, people that are not about the kingdom of God don't take kindly to you telling them that their way and the way of the world is not right. Pagan leaders and worldly leaders are shocked at the way in which the kingdom of God is meant to play out. And in the first century, as is today, when they found out their way of running things being called to account, they resist they resist that calling to account. And yet these disciples, in the midst of their trials and persecutions and suffering and pain, they held on to this hope. This is why Paul writes about hope so much. They held on to the reality that in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of their suffering and pain, there is true and living hope through Jesus Christ. At the end of Romans 15, Paul summarizes basically this whole letter that he writes by saying he longs for them to be a people and a community of hope. So what does that mean? Well, we, we talked about it a little bit about, you know, you can read Jesus' teachings and you can understand, you could read the, the different um, accounts in the New Testament about what it means to have hope in Jesus. But I think that oftentimes the way that we think of hope is just optimism. 
I think there's a big difference between optimism and hope. Optimism is a wish without warrant. <laughs> I think for many of us, we have been uh, taught to have optimism our whole lives. Uh, America is kind of known for its optimism, right? And th- th- maybe this can be seen as that um, in, in, in many different ways. But one would be is like, you know what? Um, you will be great someday. Anything is possible for you. You'll get out what you put in. Everything in the end is going to work out. And I think the question that we would ask in the midst of kind of this optimism is based on what? See, optimism doesn't have anything behind it. It's just this idea that because things have kind of worked out before, they're going to work out again, right? Or maybe your uh, parents had a pretty good life, so therefore, well, I just assume that I'm going to have a good life. Because I, uh, you know, this is uh, the, the land of the free, you know, we're, we're going to always have freedom. You know, like there's just kind of this American optimism, and that's very different than I think the hope that the scriptures are speaking of. Why would all these bad things get sorted out unless we are part of the change to make them work out. Hope is different than optimism. Christian hope is much different in that there's certainty behind it. Certainty guaranteed by God himself. Christian hope expresses the knowledge that every day, our lives and every moment beyond it, we can say as believers with truth that God's, sorry, that the basis of God's commitment, the best is yet to come. Hope, because we know what is coming, means that we demand for those future realities to become present now. We demand those future realities um, as if God was in charge to come to fruit right now against the world's systems. So we aren't content with a capitalism that means some win at the expense of others losing We aren't content with people being allowed to buy weapons and armor of war anytime they want and shoot up a school. We aren't content with people not valuing children. We aren't content with racial inequality. We aren't content with wars. We aren't content with cancer taking so many lives. We could go on and on and on. Hope, again, is different than optimism because hope can be dismissed as, can only be dismissed if it's as naive, if it's untrue. But Christian hope is based on the absolute truth and dependability. Break it, you buy it. Break it, you buy it, is that what you said? Christian hope is based on the absolute truth and dependability of Jesus Christ. Our own resurrection and the promise of all things being made new. The whole world's resurrection is based on the reality of Jesus' resurrection. We have hope now because it's true, because Jesus actually did come and live the life that we couldn't live and die the death that we deserved so that we might be free. So hope isn't just trying to make people feel better about their lot or wash over the bad stuff. 
It's a means to deal with the hardest trials in life with confidence that evil doesn't have the final word. So I think of our world right now. And I think about all the things that we have knowledge of all the time. (laughs) I was talking about this with Sarah the other night. I'm not sure our brains are supposed to know every single thing that's happening all around the world all the time. I don't think we're made for that. I'm not sure that that amount of knowledge can produce anything but a hopeless spirit, a general throwing up of hands, a yelling at the wind, a deep depression. I think we have to fill our minds with the things of God just as much to counteract these things. We have to align ourselves and root ourselves in the kingdom that is present at hand and the kingdom that is coming. We have to root ourselves in the Christian hope that doesn't promise successful days for the rich and the strong, but resurrection and life to those who must exist in the shadows of death. Success is not, the na- is not a name of God. Did you know that? You know, we don't see that in, in the Bible. But righteousness is. So the cross of Christ is the true ground and the chief cause of Christian hope. And we need hope. We're, we are supposed to be hope-filled people. You know, if you take two people and you give them the exact same life, the exact same circumstances, the exact same health, the exact same everything. But at the end, you tell them, tell one that after their kind of normal or even terrible existence, they're just going to die, right? And you tell the other person that there is this unshakable truth that one day that they will be resurrected with Christ. That produces two different outcomes in the daily life, does it not? And what we believe about the kingdom of God and our future completely controls how we experience the present. And so we must be people that understand what's happening in the world right now, how the kingdom of God is coming, is at hand, and our future reality where heaven meets earth and all things are made new. So I don't say these things in light of making light of all the things that have gone wrong this week in our community and in our world. But I'm completely convinced that we must hold on to hope. We must, our world is is very different than in the first century, but our problems are not. (laughs) We still face despair and suffering and pain. And somehow that the early church was able to hold on to hope, knowing that God's kingdom is at hand and his will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. And that one day, one day, the lion will lie down with the lamb. Jesus will come as the judge and bring righteousness and peace. Amen.